Wiser podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, I'm Cesar Mpofu Walsh, and welcome to the Wiser podcast. Over the next two weeks, our focus is on science and technology studies in Africa. This initiative at WISER is led by Professor Richard Rottenberg. He and a team of colleagues at WISER have been assembling a network of people doing research on socio-technical assemblages in African contexts. They are in the process of gathering detailed case studies from 15 African countries, including Benin, Cameroon, Chad, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Gabon, Ghana, Kenya, Mozambique, Nigeria, South Africa, Sudan, Swaziland, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. This is emerging work in a recent field focused on the amalgamation of techno-science with social, political, juridical, and cultural elements in concrete African contexts beyond the modernist binary of nature and culture. In today's podcast, Richard Rottenberg introduces the key intellectual dimensions of this ongoing project, followed by two short case studies, one by Dr. Faiza Balam, focusing on power stations in South Africa, the second by Dr. Eugenio Gagliardoni on the politics of the internet in Ethiopia. Next week, we will feature two further case studies emerging from research in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And while today's podcast focuses on large technical systems, next week features standalone devices. Devices which nevertheless depend on multiple infrastructures to operate. In our two podcasts, this week and next week, we explore how microscopic social studies of science and technology help to navigate the intermediate space between nature and culture, where things are woven together to exist to become real in African contexts. Before we get to the case studies, I'd like to introduce the way in which we have approached our objects of inquiry selected for the two podcasts. There is large technical systems as well as technical devices across the African continent. Our key guiding point in shaping and producing the study is this. The making of technoscience is dependent on where it happens. It matters hugely that most technoscientific innovations originate from the highly technicized countries of the North. Like its object of study, STS as a discipline has also been deeply ingrained in the cultural, social, political and juridical settings of the highly technicized countries of the North. Much of this work emanating from Europe and North America has declared the ontological distinction between nature and culture invalid. However, the hyped finding that nature and culture are not ontologically separate realms in fact resuscitates an ancient view of the world found around the globe, including pre-colonial Africa. Paradoxically, though, this point is not given greater importance by research and higher education institutions in Africa than in North America and Europe, and in fact is given less importance than, for instance, in Latin America. Of course, there are several exceptions to this pattern, and also 
we at Weiser have been drawing attention to this paradox in recent years. Yet most institutions of research and higher education on the continent have chosen modernist development strategies, which indeed do depend on the sharp distinction between nature and culture. In addition, most public and government debates on the role of science and technology on the continent still continue to be largely defined by narratives of development as leapfrogging. The digitization of infrastructures is perhaps the most prominent example of this. Of course, the quest for development needs to be taken seriously in order not to denigrate legitimate imaginaries of a better future nurtured by many, if not most, people on the continent. However, if science and technology studies on the continent are to be decolonized, and if we are to deaccelerate the continuing blind voyage with technoscience as our only pilot, we must be able to identify methods to find sustainable futures. For this, it is crucial to work with scientists and engineers in radically interdisciplinary ways. STS, as we understand it, generates detailed insights into how science and technology are being done in concrete situations in African countries, due to the ongoing impact of the outdated modernist great divide between nature, science and objectivity on the one side, and society, humanities and subjectivity on the other one, we believe it is important to examine in detail how the space in between is being navigated or challenged instead of flying over it with grand narratives. It is with this in mind that we much look forward to hearing to Faiza Balim and Eugenio Gagliardone. My name is Faiza Balam and I am based at the History Department of the University of Johannesburg. The story I tell here is of a power station that forms a part of my broader investigation into changing engineering practices in the small town of Lepalale from the 1970s to 2015. The Electricity Supply Commission of South Africa, otherwise known as ESCOM, was founded in 1923 and today is the largest power supplier on the African continent. ESCOM grew to prominence after the Second World War, at a time when state-led development was in vogue all around the world, and it succeeded in creating a centralized national electricity grid during the course of the 20th century. The Medupi power station is one of its many coal-fired power stations, and ESCOM is currently busy with its construction in the small town of Lepalale, which lies near to the South African border with Botswana. Construction on Medupi and its sister power station Kusile began in 2007, and a sense of urgency characterized the inception. From 2007, the dire consequences of the country's electricity shortage became clear as ESCOM implemented scheduled periods of forced electricity outages, known as load shedding. ESCOM and the South African government touted Medupi as the panacea for load shedding and promised that its construction would be wholly complete by 2015. In addition, its design was high-tech and entirely novel. In order to cope with the arid climate of the region, Medupi is a dry-cooled power station 
which means that it uses less water than the more conventional wet-cooled power plants. In order to limit carbon dioxide emissions and so alleviate environmental concerns, the boiler is of a supercritical type, which means that it has a relatively high pressure to assist in heat generation while reducing the amount of coal that is burnt. On completion, Medubi will have the capacity to generate 4,800 megawatts of electricity, making it the fourth largest coal-fired power station in the world. At the time of its design, nowhere in the world was a dry-cooled power station with a supercritical boiler and a generation capacity of that size in existence. Now, more than 10 years later, construction is still ongoing, and Medupi has come to signify the dire state of affairs at ESCOM. While the question of whether ESCOM will remain a state corporation or be wholly privatized is an open one, ESCOM is not likely to build any more large coal-fired power stations in the years to come. Medupi and Kusile have already cost around double that of their original budgets. ESCOM's current debt levels, in part due to the cost overruns of the new power stations, have jeopardized even the finances of the state because a large part of this debt is guaranteed by South Africa's national treasury. Ascertaining blame and identifying a single cause of Midupi's obduracy are near impossible tasks. This is not surprising when one considers that the construction has spanned more than 10 years, from the tail end of President Mbeki's term, throughout the tenure of President Zuma, and now into the presidency of Cyril Ramaphosa. Against a popular narrative, my assertion is that one would misunderstand the intricacy of the unfolding situation by attributing the problem only to one of political interference that has compromised technical efficiency. The term technopolitics is one commonly used in the science and technology studies literature to evoke the entanglement of technology and politics as a given, as opposed to something that can or should be avoided. In this sense, technology shapes politics and politics shapes technology to create an assemblage made of political, juridical, economic, social, and cultural elements. The way in which this assemblage unfolds cannot be reduced to either social or technological determinism. Gabriel Hecht first applied the term technopolitics to the study of nuclear power stations in France after the Second World War. These power stations fall under the category of large technical systems, a term developed by historian of technology Thomas Hughes. Hughes collapsed the age-old question of whether technology drives humans in the social world or humans drive technology by arguing that the two are inextricably linked in a seamless web. Because of its large scale, a large technical system requires a sophisticated bureaucratic organization to prosper. Medupi can be considered to be the key technology of a large technical system. It is a part of a decades-old national electricity grid and is sustained by ESCOM, which is nearly a hundred years old. The success or failure of Medupi is as much a product of the legal, financial and human resources challenges associated with bureaucratic management as of its technological functioning.
At the dawn of democracy in 1994, ESCOM was a part and parcel of the ANC's vision of modernity for the previously disenfranchised black majority. According to the Department of Energy's estimates, 36% of households in the country were connected to the electricity grid in 1994 and 88% by 2014. Connecting households to the grid on this scale was a huge engineering and managerial task, and electricity had to be supplied at affordable tariffs, which a private corporation would not have been able to tolerate. Fortunately, ESCOM entered the 1990s with a situation of electricity oversupply. The gold mines were historically ESCOM's single largest consumer of electricity, and ESCOM built six new power stations in the 1980s. But the unexpected downturn in the fortunes of the gold mines during the same decade meant that ESCOM's demand forecasting, which it had made in the 1970s, had overshot the mark. The fact that ESCOM had spent money on unnecessary new power stations meant that it became politically unpopular for the government under President P.W. Porter. In the 1990s, the ANC's policy of neoliberal austerity led to its inertia on the question of developing new electricity generation capacity. This led to a power shortage, and when load shedding began to bite from 2007, Medupi was intended to continue the realization of universal electrification. Medupi has assumed various connotations over the lifespan of its construction. In June 2012, a boiler pressure test for the first power station unit of Medupi led then-President Jacob Zuma to traverse the countryside to the arid town of Lepalale. There, he praised Medupi's high-tech prowess and its promise of massive job creation. Fast forward three years, and low-skilled workers were laid off en masse due to the inevitable end of the civil works construction period. Labor unrest played construction at Medupi early on and intensified with the changing terrain for union organization at the national level. This changing labor terrain was tragically apparent at the Marikana massacre of 2012. At Marikana, mine workers employed by the Lonwin Platinum Mine lost faith in the leadership of the official union, the National Union of Mine Workers, and they embarked on strike action that was deemed illegal and subsequently put down by police force. Over the course of 2015, labor unrest at Medupi evaded union control, so that it was uncontrollable by power station managers and union leaders alike. This added to the already significant number of lost productivity days at the power station. Fast forward another five years, and ESCOM is in the sight of the State Capture Commission, which began in August 2018. The commission is a public inquiry into allegations of fraud and corruption that coincided with the tenure of President Zuma. While corruption around the award of tenders for Medupi has not yet been officially proven as the reason for Medupi's faults, the power station is still tainted by its development during the state capture period. But neither political interference, such as the ANC's involvement in the initial award of the boiler tender to the multinational corporation Hitachi, nor technical faults, such as improper welding in the boiler, 
are enough to account for Midupi's obduracy. Despite the best political will, Midupi's technical faults have proven costly and time-consuming to repair. In short, Medubi has assumed a techno-political life of its own. It was in itself a techno-political intervention that then forged other techno-political interventions, most of which were enacted as purely technical issues. But as an assemblage of various elements, its meaning is not static and has changed over the last decade along with the changes in its constituent parts. I'm Eugenio Gagliardone. I'm based uh, in the media department uh, at Wits University, where I'm looking uh, at the evolution of different conceptions of the information society in the global north, in the global south, and in the east. Transformation in digital infrastructure in Africa in the past 10 years can be tackled from many different fronts. For this podcast, I choose one in particular because of its scale, because of its significance, and because it's one that is often misunderstood. What I'm referring to is the increasing role that China has had in wiring the continent. Almost every country in Africa has been affected. China has been the largest lender in the telecommunications sector in the history of the continent. And this relationship is misunderstood because it's one that is caught in many controversies and is marred by a number of paradoxes. I'm going to focus on three in particular. The first one is that differently from the rise of social media or mobile banking, which are constantly invisibly present in the life of many, digital infrastructure is largely invisible. Most of us are not aware or care very little whether their messages or transactions are carried by a mast or a cable installed by Huawei or by Ericsson or by Korea Telecom. And connected to this is a second paradox, this time it tied to China's very own strategy. In the past, China's used massive investment in other forms of infrastructure, roads, railways, dams, airports, to signal its interest and its supposed benevolence to the continent. As an Ethiopian colleague told me once, go out in the street of Addis Ababa and ask people if they know of a project funded by the United States. They will have no idea. But go and ask them about China, they will start pointing at everything that is around them. But when it comes to digital infrastructure, that starts from being the case. Those are either underground or they're in disguise. They're not helping China communicating to African citizens. And the final paradox is how this invisibility turns into its opposite when it comes to its geopolitical implications. Many countries in the West, but also some think tanks and some corners of academia, have spent significant energies to warn African countries and the world at large that a greater involvement of China in the digital space will result in more authoritarianism. And it's in resonance with the paradoxical nature of this phenomenon that in the short postcast, I'm going to ask three questions and offer three apparently contradictory answers. The first question is, is China trying to impose or even propose an authoritarian model of the information society in Africa? The short answer is no. The second question is, does this mean that no actors are trying to appropriate or export element of this model abroad? In this case, the short answer is, it's complicated. The third and final question is, 
if some elements of this model are taking roots in Africa, should we worry in the end about their consequences on our rights and freedom? And the answer is not now, but we should keep an eye on the space. So to offer a fuller answer to this question, what I will do in the second part of the podcast is re relying mostly on the case of Ethiopia and related to a few other cases across Africa. So question one, is China exporting an authoritarian model of the internet in Africa? A question like this, which is often posed in policy circle, has many problems, but it has one in particular. It obliterates African agency. In Ethiopia, China has provided the largest loan in the history of telecommunication in Africa, more than three billion US dollars used by Huawei and ZTE to completely overhaul its digital infrastructure and to support the government in its stubborn project to expand access in a regime of state monopoly. But when we move to Ghana and Kenya, two countries that are seen as more democratic and are indeed characterized by an open and liberalized digital space, Chinese companies, backed by Chinese export credits, became just one of the many actors engaged in laying down national backbones to provide faster and more widespread connectivity. If we expand the focus to other countries on the continent, we will just find more of the same. Not a specific model being pushed on countries, but a significant disposition to actually adapt to what is being asked. And I see a second problem with this question, which is that pointing fingers at China, which is an easy target given its domestic record in terms of freedom of expression, often is the function of concealing the responsibilities of other actors in supporting digital authoritarianism. But in this, an example and a provocation that I use often, which also focuses on Ethiopia. So because of the Snowden revelation, we now know that the US National Security Agency launched a project in Ethiopia called Lions Pride, which aim was training Ethiopian spies in digital surveillance in the Horn of Africa. And because of excellent work that is being done by colleagues at the Citizen Lab in Canada, we also know that the Ethiopian government has been actively buying software for spying on political opponent for companies in Europe, in the UK, or in Italy in particular. And as I just said, China has offered the largest loan in history to overall the Ethiopia's telecommunication system. So this is the result. If you are an Ethiopian spy, you are likely to have been trained by the Americans to use software produced in, in Europe and to harvest data on a Chinese-built network. And this example leads me to my second question, that rephrase can sound like, so shall we not worry so much about China and its digital and authoritarianism? Shall we look elsewhere? Well, not so quickly. In the past five years, Huawei and ZTE, the two largest Chinese telecom giant, have aggressively promoted their safe city and smart city projects across Asia and Africa. And while Chinese authorities, diplomats or technocrats have always refrained from suggesting African countries should take cues from China in developing their digital future, Chinese companies have been much more aggressive. Safe City and Smart City are based on pervasive urban surveillance through video cameras, facial recognition, and artificial intelligence. And among other things, they're aimed at combating crime and unrest more in general. Huawei and ZTE, differing from the Chinese government, had actively presented solution made in China as the most appropriate for African context. The commercial pitch sounds something like, 
In China, we have developed one of the most effective models to control and contain crimes and unrest. And if you're looking for a partner to achieve this goal, well, here we are. So the final question is, should we be worried? Well, not really, or at least not for now. A narrative that has emerged around this project is that they represent a vital threat to civil liberties. And they certainly have the ingredients for being so. But here's a problem. These claims seem to presuppose that surveillance technologies, aided somehow by their more sinister and cunning nature, will succeed in producing the desired effect, where the liberation technologies that for many years we've expected to free the world from abuse and authoritarianism have failed. Well, this is not the case. Data that is now emerging from projects developed in Nairobi, Mombasa, Kampala, but also Karachi and Lahore, are showing how many of the safe city and smart city project actually have been quite ineffective. Similarly to liberation technology, also what some have called technologies of armed freedom, have actually to relate to the complex technopolitical realities of countries that have experienced trajectories in the evolution of their information society that are dramatically different from China's. And these projects that all faltered or failed altogether when inserted in context that are very different from those where they originated. So, to conclude, China's role in digital infrastructure in Africa has been massive, but its involvement has also offered huge opportunity for oversimplification and for reducing complex processes to influence of one actor, opposing a stereotyped version of the open versus the closed internet. State and corporate surveillance from the East, from the West, and from within Africa are indeed threats to users that were once supposed to be the ones shaping the cyberspace. But it's not by focusing on only one element of this complex equation that we can bring some power back to those users. Mm -hmm.